1: Master is either flattered or offended by the fact that I said, I'm not sure you're really a Dave and Buster's person. I've been
0: checking it out. I'm good.
1: Okay. You're good? Yeah. I'm you're good. good. We don't need to go there after and the that show. And that means
0: nothing. I'm it means like, it's nothing. It's everybody... just
1: not, not your jam. Yeah. Uh, Scott DeVoe is here. Deals reporter, activist. Beat is part of his responsibility here. And the reason we have him talking about this story is KKR taking a big stake, a relatively substantial stake, a minority stake in Dave and Buster's disclosing that today this is an interesting playbook here tell us about it scott
2: yeah it's 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 pretty interesting because they're traditionally a private equity player and you don't see them going active per se but this is part of this trend that's starting to develop where private equity firms are becoming more like activist funds and activist funds are becoming more like private equity players and so tell us about this particular deal because they're saying it's not a hostile deal
1: you know, that this isn't sort of a foothold to, to do a hostile takeover of the company, and yet you and I were talking as we were walking out to lunch today, this is an activist play. It sort of it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. This is activism.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you get this all the time. Nobody wants to be called an activist investor, right? But if by my standard, if you file what's called a 13D with the SEC, you're an active investor. Um, you might not be a traditional activist, but you are active, and that's what they've done here. So it's it, it is kind of a bit of a change for them. Um, they said that you know obviously you want to talk they've had talks with management, they want to continue having talks with management and they have some ideas on how to prove the company's performance.
0: All right. So the stock is up about 12% so far today. It's a little bit off its highs. It was down about 10% last uh, year and 19% the year before. Is this, though, um, Scott, more about private equity has so much money, dry powder, if you will, and so playing in the private space just doesn't cut it anymore?
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. And so we've started to see this. We, uh, you know, uh, My colleague Ed Hammond broke a story earlier this week about TPG raising a new fund that they were not calling it an activist fund, but, you know, what the, the intent is, is that they're going to take minority uh, positions in companies and try to affect change at them. So, I mean, it's an activist fund right. per se, but, you know, again, nobody wants to call it an activist fund. Well, and that was what I found interesting about this
1: disclosure by KKR, as they say, and reading from our uh, Bloomberg coverage here, may also engage in talks with stockholders or other security holders and other relevant parties or take certain actions, including transactions and board changes. Again, that's what activists do. Why? Why this company? I mean, help us understand maybe a little bit of okay. what's going on at David. Just to
2: be fair, though, that's pretty standard 13D language. Sure. So yep. you basically have to disclose what you may or may not right. do, and it doesn't mean you're going to do any of this yep. stuff. So, but in this case, and we've seen it before, they they were in a company called Hangar. Uh, they they disclosed 13D in KKR that is KKR yeah. in September, and you know that company didn't go private that company underwent some changes it's up about 150% from where they were when KKR disclosed its original position so the understanding that I have is that this is not necessarily about putting this company into play, but they do genuinely have some ideas on how they can, right. they can improve the performance. And now Dave & Buster's has suffered a little bit. The same store sales are down. They're trying to kind of reinvent themselves a little bit, refresh their image, you know, so that they can get more people in the door. And I think, you know, private equity expertise maybe wouldn't be a bad thing.
3: Right. And I do
0: feel like the private equity guys, right, have increasingly moved into kind of the hospitality space or the restaurant space, sure. so maybe, is this an add-on or tack-on to some of the other restaurant names that maybe they've invested in, and maybe they're thinking of bundling something? We, def-
2: we No, no. I think we've definitely seen private equity go into the restaurant space. There's been a lot of companies that have gone into play, yeah. like Del Frisco's got sold, yeah. you know, Bloomin' Brands is running a process. You know, these these kind it's 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 a, a, an investment that's not uncommon to private equity but i think what's important here is what they're doing is they're getting a toll hold in a company that maybe potentially goes up for sale but if they get this toll hold they already have 10 percent. they're going right. to understand the business and that's going to give them a leg up if there is a process on right that. and again i'm not saying there is a process and it could be that but- they just make some changes and make some money off of the public stock. I mean, exactly. I do
1: remember having a conversation with some very senior Well, they've made KKR. a bunch of money today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. I remember having this conversation with some very senior KKR folks, and, and Henry Kravis and George Roberts have been pretty public about this, that they want to be able to invest in all types of companies in all different ways, and getting past the sort of plain vanilla, as it were, LBO, the take private, or the family business, just, you know, using right. some equity and leverage, you know, that's not the only playbook they want to have, and if they see something that's undervalued by their uh, estimation they want to be able to do it. All right. Scott DeVoe, thank you so much. Deals reporter, activist expert here at Bloomberg, all over the play story, P-L-A-Y. That's Dave Buster's stock symbol. And KKR, taking a look. Down at the arcade, down at the arcade,
0: down at the arcade.
1: So, Carol Masser is either flattered or offended by the fact that I said, I'm not sure you're really a Dave & Buster's person. I've been
0: checking it out. I'm good.
1: Okay, you're good? Yeah, I'm You're good. good. We don't need to go there after and the that show. And that means
0: nothing. I'm it means like, nothing. It's everybody... just
1: not, not your jam. Yeah. Uh, Scott DeVoe is here, deals reporter, activist. Beat is part of his responsibility here. And the reason we have him talking about this story is KKR... Taking a big stake, a relatively substantial stake, a minority stake in Dave & Buster's. Disclosing that today, this is an interesting playbook here. Tell us about it, Scott.
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty interesting because they're traditionally a private equity player and you don't see them going active per se, but this is part of this trend that's starting to develop where private equity firms are becoming more like activist funds and activist funds are becoming more like private equity players. And so tell us about this particular deal because they're saying it's not a hostile
1: deal, you know, that this isn't sort of a foothold to, to do a hostile takeover of the company. And yet, you and I were talking as we were walking out to lunch today, this is an activist play. It sort of it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. this is activism.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you get this all the time. Nobody wants to be called an activist investor, right? But if by my standard, if you file what's called a thirteen d with the SEC, you're an active investor. Um, you might not be a traditional activist, but you are active, and that's what they've done here. So it's it, it is kind of a bit of a change for them. Um, they said that you know, obviously you want to talk, they've had talks with management, they want to continue having talks with management. And they have some ideas on how to improve the company's performance.
0: All right. So the stock is up about 12% so far today. It's a little bit off its highs. It was down about 10% last uh, year and 19% the year before. Is this, though, um, Scott, more about private equity has so much money, dry powder, if you will. And so playing in the private space just doesn't cut it anymore.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. And so we've started to see this. We, uh, you know, uh, my colleague Ed Hammond broke a story earlier this week about TPG raising a new fund that they were not calling it an activist fund, but, you know, what the, the intent is, is that they're going to take minority uh, positions and companies and try to affect change at them. So, I mean, it's an activist fund right. per se, but, you know, again, nobody wants to call it an activist fund. Well, and that was what I found interesting
1: about this disclosure by KKR, as they say, and reading from our uh, Bloomberg coverage here, may also engage in talks with stockholders or other security holders and other relevant parties or take certain actions, including transactions and board changes again that's what activists do why why this company i mean help us understand maybe a little bit of what's going on at david just to
2: be fair though that's pretty standard 13d language sure so you basically have to disclose what you may or may not do and it doesn't mean you're going to do any of this stuff so but in this case and we've seen it before they they were in a company called hanger uh they they disclosed 13d kkr that is kkr in september and you know that company didn't go private that company underwent some changes, it's up about 150% from where they were when KKR disclosed its original position. So the understanding that I have is that this is not necessarily about putting this company into play, but they do genuinely have some ideas on how they they can improve the performance. And now Dave & Buster's has suffered a little bit, the same store sales are down, they're trying to kind of reinvent themselves a little bit, refresh their image, you know, so that they can get more people in the door. And I think, you know, private equity expertise maybe wouldn't be a bad thing. right? And I
0: do feel like the private equity guys, right, have increasingly moved into kind of the hospitality space or the restaurant space. Sure. So maybe, is this an add-on or tack-on to some of the other restaurant names that maybe they've invested in and maybe they're thinking of bundling something? We
2: def- we, no, no. I think we've definitely seen private equity go into the restaurant space. There's been a lot of companies that have gone into play. Yeah. Like Del Frisco's got sold. Yeah. You know, Blooming Brands is running a process. You know, these, these kind it's 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 a, a, an investment that's not uncommon to private equity, but I think what's important here is what they're doing is they're getting a toll hold in a company that maybe potentially goes up for sale. But if they get this toll hold, they already have ten percent. They're going right. to understand the business, and that's going to give them a leg up if there is a process. On right. That. And again, I'm not saying there is a process. And it could be that but- they just make some changes and make some money off of the public
1: stock. I mean, exactly. I do remember having a conversation with some very senior KKR. Well, they've made KKR. a bunch of money today. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, right. I remember having this conversation with some very senior KKR folks, and, and Henry Kravis and George Roberts have been pretty public about this, that they want to be able to invest in all types of companies in all different ways, and getting past the sort of plain vanilla, as it were, LBO, the take private, or the family business, just you know using right. some equity and leverage. You know, may, That's not the only playbook they want to have, and if they see something that's undervalued by their Uh, estimation, they want to be able to do it. All right, Scott DeVoe, thank you so much. Deals reporter, activist, expert here at Bloomberg, all over the play story, P-L-A-Y. That's Dave & Buster's stock symbol, and KKR, taking a look. All right, so a couple stories that caught our attention in the magazine this week. One is going forward what happens to those companies that Carlos Ghosn left behind? We loved hearing about, I mean, the unbelievable reporting by Matt Campbell and team about the escape of Carlos Ghosn, his arrival in Lebanon, what happens next for him legally. But there is this whole matter of these two companies that he was running, Renault and Nissan, we're talking about. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. You've really done a nice job telling the story very holistically. Tell us about the strategy that's going on at these two car companies. Well, so this is like the chaos
4: that gone kind of rot, right? Like everyone's been captivated by that. Like you said, we've got we've had some amazing reporting by Matt Campbell and team about sort of how that uh, went down. It, it, what, what's been really interesting, though, is the other side of the story of like what happens to this alliance that you know. So go basically architected it, largest uh, auto alliance in the world, and ever since he's not been on the picture, it's all sort of fallen apart. What was interesting was that it kind of came to a moment at the beginning, at the end of 2019, where there was sort of a a little bit of a truce. It felt like things were sort of starting to get stable. But then, once he's free, it's now again sort of in free fall.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. And and holding that press conference, right, and ta- you know, pointing the finger and naming names in terms of our individuals that he faults for like the problems, kind of re-upped all of the I feel like antagonism between the two sides. And
4: that's right. And you know, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind here is sort of the existential moment for the auto industry as a whole. And Gone was aware of that, right? And he was actually, you know, in conversations, according to him, with Fiat, among others, yeah. to try the Fiat Chrysler conversation, to see if it could even go one level bigger than that. And so he he throws shade at at you know his uh, his uh, former colleagues for basically throwing them under the bus here because he had seen what was coming and was you know strategically able to be the one that could kind of pull this kind of deal off, but. You know, thinking about this alliance now, it is really tenuous because they no longer have that ability to do that merger. Mm-hmm. And and yet the complications of the auto industry, as the Nissan story uh, really showed, like Nissan looks terrible right now. Right. Uh, so in, in theory, and we say this in the story, the need for the alliance is more important than ever because the, the industry is really... Uh, pivoting towards that electrical self-driving moment, and none of these automakers are ready for that.
0: But what's also interesting is Renault needs Nissan too; it's its biggest asset, so it gets a ton of money in terms of dividends from the company. So they are so. I love how this story talks about that these two companies are so intertwined in terms of factories and production and crisscrossing. Like you, well, don't-
4: not even that, but like even just the political side of it Correct. and how complicated that is. So. You've got all these uh, pieces that you can't quite separate, and that's why it's such a messy thing. And yeah. we're not totally clear how it even resolves from here, but the they came together because they were stronger together than they were apart. It seems like that that logic remains true still.
1: Uh, but everyone involved in it uh, seems to sort of hate each other at the moment. Right. So, All right. Yeah. So speaking of strategy stories, elsewhere in the magazine, this was a feature that I know we loved reading about as well. Uh, Forever 21, I mean, familiar, I think, to uh, a number of shoppers, especially I believe they had a big uh, – they Had a big location down in Lower Manhattan. You <laughs> know, so oh so the uh,
4: the story of uh, fur 21 is a fascinating one, and it, this is a, a company that boomed over the last decade. And uh, it turns out, though, that, um, that maybe they weren't quite ready for that boom, and they you know they went bankrupt in the fall. What's been kind of fascinating, and and the story really dives into this, is like who owns it? And yeah. right. it's a, this Korean couple own still, I think, ninety nine percent of it. Uh, and yet they don't really talk to each other. They have handlers who own, you know, another couple, um, that only the the woman deals with the the uh, woman and the man deals with the man and they have houses that are often near each other. What's really important about Forever 21, though, is this is a global company, yeah. sprawling empire, and you know who loves them? Malls. Yeah. Malls are the people that love Forever 21 because Forever 21 means you have young foot traffic. Yep. And you have gigantic footprints. Uh, and if, you, if you're if you filling malls right now, you need both of those things. You need people paying rent and you need uh, foot traffic. And, think, and the promise of Forever 21 was that they were supposed to deliver
1: on that.
0: As the mom of a teenage girl, I mean, there is a point. I think in almost every young girl's life that they at some point are shopping there and they may not do it for a long time. This is time. why I
1: was looking at you and then you well, looked at me like I was insane. Well,
0: I said to you when she was younger, but like, I you know, know, that's but what they, I was
1: remembering.
0: <laughs> but they're kind of in and out with it, but I, it's not expensive. And so it's easy. Like, you know what I mean? It's manageable. Well, it
4: was a fast fashion brand, right? Totally. That was like exactly what this thing totally. did well. Really and fast. it went global with it. But what was really interesting when we dug into the reporting um, and the team did an, kind of an amazing job on this was sort of the lack of market research Research that the company seemed willing or able to do, so they were oftentimes shipping furs to com- to countries where furs were like not even in season, right? Wow. Like so, winter apparel in South America when it's not even that season for winter jackets, and boxes of inventory just filling up, filling up, filling up. Um, so even fast fashion sort of has its right. downfalls. I mean, the whole yeah. point of the idea fast.
0: Like know your market? To, is
1: to know your market and be able to respond to it. Alright, so a minute left, Joel Weber. What's the thread through this week's uh, issue? Uh,
4: right. Bankruptcy, interestingly <laughs> enough. Yeah. like I mean, we've had this Forever 21 story in this mix. Uh, we felt like, it, especially the moment that it really matters now is it, it, here at the end of January. We've gone through the holiday season. It's a reckoning as they deal with their creditors of like, what does this company look like going forward? Um, and then you know on back the cover, the cover story. And, and back totally. to the cover story. Leon Black, not affiliated with Forever Twenty One at all, uh, but a person who has really thrived on uh, uh, companies at moments of weakness, and and he's made himself and investors very wealthy by uh, you know navigating the shoals.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now it's well a great said. issue. Uh, we really enjoyed reading it. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. I loved this story.
0: I loved it too, because it was another deep dive in the magazine by a great reporter, Business Week writer Claire Suddeth. It's about the second most popular dating app in the U.S. It's supposed to offer women a better option, but she really goes in search of trying to find an answer for the question, does it? So this story online at Bloomberg.com and also coming up in the magazine as well. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're talking about Bumble. Yes, we are. So tell us for those. I have to be quite honest with you. I know there was a Sharon Stone story about Bumble, and I feel like it got a lot of attention. I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about it.
5: Yeah. So unless you're a millennial um, oh, who that hurt. online dates, <laughs> who online dates, okay, um, you may not be too familiar with Bumble, but if you do online date, you will have definitely heard of it because it is the second largest dating app in the U.S. outside of Tinder. Obviously, it has millions and millions of people. Um, it's been around for about five years, and it's um, sort of defining characteristic. It was founded by this woman named Whitney wolfe who
0: co-founded Tinder too, right? Yeah, she was one Should of the, the co-founders
5: role? of Tinder. Okay. She had this like very public sexual harassment lawsuit in 2014. Um, that same year, she started Bumble, and its defining characteristic is that um, you know once you swipe right on each other, a man and a woman, only the woman can message the man first. The man cannot talk to the woman first. She has said for years that this reduces harassment. Um, they've instituted all these other safety features, and they often publicly will talk about, you know, because of this, they're empowering women. They have lower harassment and abuse rates than, you know, all their competitors, other dating apps. And it sounds great. Mm-hmm. You know, it does prevent men from sending you a nasty first message, but it doesn't necessarily prevent the other harassment later down the line, or or change anything really about relationships so i started looking into well so what are they actually doing what do they know um and then i talked to all these employees and former employees who worked there who said actually bumble doesn't really do any testing whatsoever on whether or not its claims are true which is kind of like, I think about it from
0: a reporter's perspective, and you're a great reporter, and like that would be one of the things you said, okay, so what are the metrics that you find that you know, you've know got this big mission? Um, how you doing? Yeah, it's
1: kind of a natural follow-up right? question, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, so they, you know, th- the way that this sort of came about is I thought they were doing really good stuff, and so I was like, this is exciting. Tell me about your company. And they said, well, we have the lowest abuse rates of any platform, and I said, what are those? And they said, oh, we don't actually know them and it went from there um, you know they have this um, they also have a platonic version of the app for people looking to find friends and then they have this sort of business networking version right supposedly that empowers women as well um, but it your profile looks like a dating profile so right. I found that I just got a lot of weird messages from men wanting to offer me like free Pilates classes that does not help my career whatsoever yeah I don't really understand how that is empowering at all. And tell
1: us about Whitney Wolf because you know this is a company it feels like that for better or worse sort of embodies her personality in many ways. I mean, the tone is very much set by her. You spent a fair amount of time with her.
5: Yeah, Whitney is I think a very um, forward-thinking and. You know, seemingly
1: well-meaning, well-meaning
5: individual, very smart. Um, You know, she went to Southern Methodist University, um, and she talks a lot about how she felt like um, there was this old-fashioned way of dating where women had to wait for men to ask them out, and women couldn't do certain things waiting for men to sort of court them. And she wanted to flip that around. Um, But when I talk to people who actually used Bumble, um, on the one hand, women. Generally still didn't do that asking out they had to send the first message But they still waited mostly for men to ask them out and then also some men that I talked to said I don't know women ask men out and it doesn't really matter whether it was on bumble or tinder or anything like that So and how
1: much of the tinder experience do you think informed? Again for better and worse what bumble has become
5: I think it actually you have to have tinder before you can have bumble not just because whitney had to found tinder before she founded bumble Um, but you know tinder was the first real successful dating app that made it easy to find people on your phone everything else before then was basically a website right and you know it sort of led to this hookup culture there there are all these like memes bad tinder dates um you know a lot of harassment, people sending terrible messages to each other. And so Bumble comes out and says, hey, we're basically the same thing, although they are in a lawsuit with Match Group over their intellectual property over swiping mm. left and right. But, you know, hey, we're basically also a dating app, but we've, you know, we've fixed the harassment problem. I, can they I, haven't. I have to just say, there's
0: so many things that jump out for me, but, you, you know, you cited some research from... Our data from Pew Research Center, more than 40% of people in the US have been harassed or threatened online, 40%. Women, especially those under 30, are more than twice as likely um, to receive some kind of what, sexually violent threats that they find very upsetting. And what was interesting about this is that they were on a mission to improve this, and if they could figure it out, think about what they could do from all of social media, but they're not there just quickly, right?
5: Yeah, and it's, it's a very difficult problem to tackle you know Facebook Twitter they're all trying to do it and the problem is that you can't just ban certain words and be done with it which is basically what Bumble is doing
1: all right it's a great great story story. Uh, definitely check it out online and on the Bloomberg terminal Claire said writer for Bloomberg Business Week terrific piece
0: For this. Yeah, we're talking BlackRock. Uh, we've been following this story uh, all along, and it's really kind of um, found its way into a couple different conversations on the company itself and more broadly. We're talking about BlackRock putting climate change at the center of its $7 trillion strategy. That is perspective, Jason, because it just reminds you how much money um, that they are involved in on a regular basis. And because of that, they can certainly bring about change.
1: Right. And there are direct impacts to this. There are indirect impacts. Yes. Let's get into it with Shaheen Khan. Contra- ESG Associate Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back. Thank you. All right, so this is a really smart piece of analysis because I feel like what we're trying to do constantly with ESG is really look at where the rubber meets the road. BlackRock has been saying a lot Mm -hmm. of things of late. Tell us what they've been saying and what it means, especially as it relates to coal.
3: Sure. So in a letter to shareholders, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink committed to a number of things. So most notably is this move to reduce coal exposure by divesting companies from its active portfolio. Now, this is a strong signal to companies. However, we don't think it could have much of an impact because at the end of the day, BlackRock is a large passive holder and this policy is specifically for its active funds.
1: So the key word he used was active, (laughs) Active, right? And we know as you just pointed out that, and this was uh, pointed out really magnificently in the the magazine and the cover story two weeks ago, that the passive holdings that BlackRock and the other of the big three have are huge, tell us about the the scope here.
3: Of course, Uh, so we actually did this analysis and we see that of BlackRock's investments in coal companies, 90% are passive investments, so these won't be touched. Just to note, this is only looking at Bloomberg's ETF and mutual fund data, so Mm -hmm. it could change if you look at BlackRock's institutional investments. But still, so, largely wah, wah, wah. This
0: means it's not got as much uh, bang as we thought. It
3: sends a strong signal, and divestments as a whole will continue to increase. So, as a message, it's right, but as an impact, not so much.
0: Yeah, it's like kind of a, hey, yeah, it's
3: like,
1: hey guys, <laughs> maybe. Like, maybe you should think about not doing this exactly that way. And yet, it does feel like, and, and I'd be fascinated by your perspective on this shaheen that we are at a moment where a this is being talked about a lot more 100%. and there is a sense that as blackrock goes so go other investors yes it's hard to quantify, but but help us understand maybe the, the mood shift out there. Of course.
3: So divestment as a whole has continued to increase. A number of insurers, banks, and now even diversified miners are starting to divest their coal assets. Mm. So one interesting comparison is Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, their policy they put last year. Right. So another point about BlackRock is it has a revenue threshold limit of 25%. So this excludes large diversified miners like Glencore or BHP that produce large quantities of coal. But Norway's sovereign wealth fund put a quantity limit, so anything above 20 million tons, Ah, they excluded.
1: Interesting. So these
3: miners would get excluded from Norway's policy, but still included under BlackRock. So very different policies, but definitely a divestment movement that's taking place.
0: I have to say, it's still, I think, good to see this in the conversation, right? Folks are thinking about, you know, what ESG means more broadly and starting to put parameters in terms of investments and thinking about things like climate change. Definitely. I mean, as you say, even baby steps, that's how you learn, right? Well, and it also... <laughs> how starts how to start. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and it also
1: does feel like that even outside of... ESG funds and we've seen some of those you know impact type funds at yeah. the KKRs and the, and the TPGs of the world when investors are going before a pension board or as as you point out rightly Shaheen uh, a, pen, a a sovereign wealth fund an endowment they're asking those questions, yeah. right? They're asking, what are you holding? How much Correct. is it? And I want to get a little bit more under the covers.
3: It's very di- it's very driven by your clientele, right. especially institutional investors, if, if that's what it is.
1: Right, all right. A very, very smart Great. analysis. Thank you so much for joining us, Thank Shaheen you. Contractor. ESG Associate Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Her piece of an analysis is all about BlackRock and essentially pointing out that the carbon exposure that they're trying to cut, well, it's sort of limited when you get into the fine print that it's only good the devil, going, in the details, the devil continues to be in the
3: details
0: <laughs> funny how
1: that happens especially on wall street exactly exactly how about you let me drive
3: oh no no no, no.
1: Who's gonna drive you home? honey please i'll do the
4: driving
3: drive on
1: excuse me i want to drive just drive, so just drive baby it's the
5: question that drives us. We can reach our
2: This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for the drive to the close, wrapping up this uh, week of trading. It is Friday. Let's bring in Ryan Dietrich. He's senior market strategist at LPL Financial, roughly $706 billion in assets under management. He's joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, um, I always think about a week like this where despite some of the big news stories out of Washington and getting through bank earnings and all that good stuff, you know, what are the technicals telling us potentially about this continual drive by investors to take on risk?
6: Yeah, hey, Carol, thanks for having me back. And did I hear you guys are going to have snow this weekend? Uh, they so said? they say. Ooh.
1: True facts. Oh,
6: boy. True fact. Well. Down here cold. in Charlotte, we don't have, it's we don't cold, have that cold, problem. Cold, cold here, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck, guys. I am in New York in two weeks, so keep the snow away in two weeks. None, nonetheless, um, you know, when you look at technicals, we clearly have had a great run. We know that S and P is looking at maybe being up five straight months if we can close higher in January. So when we look at the world here near term, extremely stretched. You know, I like to look at you know market technicals and look at market sentiment too. I think they are kind of connected various put-to-call ratios, people excited. Look at ETF flows, a lot of money coming in. I mean, hey, things are great, right? 12 months ago, they weren't like that. So we're a little more cautious here just because of the optimism that's coming in. I mean, I've been bullish to you guys for a while coming on saying, hey, we're going higher. But right now, we are getting a little more cautious because everyone else is so excited.
1: All right. So one of the uh, charts that you shared with us I find so fascinating, and it's all under the... uh, Auspices of geopolitical market shock events. And man, I got to tell you, I look back at this and you go all the way back to Pearl Harbor. Put this recent volatility, this geopolitical volatility, in context for us.
6: Well, Jason, that's right. You know, we went back to Pearl Harbor back in 1941. There were 20 geopolitical events. What we found the SP falls about 5% on average after these big events for about three weeks. Good news, within two and a half months, the S&P makes up those gains. So you tend to have pullbacks, but then things kind of keep going higher. And you put it in perspective now – Guys, we've gone over three months without a one percent move up or down on the S and P 500. Okay, I mean we've really not had much volatility at all on this recent, you know, with the Iran issues that we've just had. So it's it's really unique. I mean, yes, we had futures down, you know, a couple Tuesdays ago when the strikes happened, we were concerned, but boy, the market just takes it in stride. And the one thing we found, we looked at those 20 times, some of the worst returns took place when during recessions. You had the geopolitical concern, but you had a recession. And I'll tell you, look at the recent data we're seeing. We just don't see a recession happening in twenty twenty, and that's kind of um, where we found it. So it's almost like you know, use it as opportunity if the economy's strong is something that still makes sense to us.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think our Dave Wilson has looked at things like this. That when you've got a big up year, um, what happens the following year? You guys have done the same thing.
6: Yeah, I mean, Dave might have quoted me actually. I think on that one, and, and I, believe, right. he I, mean, I yeah, believe he did. I believe he did. Thank you, Dave. thank you, Dave. That's always nice when he does that. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, we took a look when the S and is up thirty percent, because that's the big thing we're getting from our advisors and their clients. Oh my goodness, the stock market's up so much, we have to pull back. And there's some truth to that. But what we found when you're up thirty percent, the next year was actually higher. Ten out of twelve times, fifteen percent on average for the S and P. Now we're not really expecting a fifteen percent rally, but what we think it helps reinforce is the fact that you absolutely can have continued gains um, after big rallies. And that's just kind of what history tells us. History is a guide. You know, we don't follow it blindly, but let's not ignore it either.
1: And so I guess from a historical perspective or maybe from a current perspective, you know, you think about a week like this. I mean, we were marveling at this at the top of the show and really throughout the week that the sort of political volatility we saw this week, the optics of, you know, the chief justice of the Supreme court being sworn in for an impeachment trial. Only the third time this has happened in the history of America. And we are in record territory again, I I have to wonder, I mean, I know that the, this time it's different argument is always so dangerous, Ryan, but do you look at that at a week like this and, and Marvel a little well, you have to a little bit, right? I mean, but don't forget in
6: 1998 when President Clinton was impeached, the S&P was up 40% yeah,
1: good point.
4: six
6: months later. So we're not saying that's going to happen, but that's that's how to look at. But what's going on right now is the whole global picture. I mean, Europe's gone nowhere for 21 years. Europe, the Euro Stock 600, is breaking out to all-time highs. Of course, we're all-time highs here, 52-week highs across the board in Europe. And we're really encouraged by what's happening with the emerging markets. Emerging markets the last three months, I think, quietly are all of a sudden starting to lead, take that baton. That's kind of our opinion that there's not a global recession happening. And if there's not a global recession, EM which is a place that might see 14% earnings growth this year, almost double probably we're going to have in the U.S. Emerging markets, maybe it's finally their time to take that baton, and that's a place that we're investing for our LPL advisors, actually. We like emerging markets in 2020.
0: Yeah, um, that's interesting. I was just looking at the chart, right? We have seen a, a, a pretty decent uptick uh, going back to the low back in August. Um, when you think about emerging markets, um, Ryan, how do you play it?
6: Yeah, I mean, we just like some of the big ETFs, okay. uh, like, you know, that's kind of the way we look at it. But what we like about it is just the fact that trade all of a sudden is finally starting to calm down. The U.S. dollar, we think, is looking toppy. That's historically a tailwind. And then those earnings and valu- valuations, EM's the cheapest thing out there. So we still like it on from that point of view as well. All right, so
1: how you feeling about your uh, your Panthers down there? Pretty good? Oh, wow, we're touch well, no, no actually, I'm from Cincinnati, okay? Oh, so boy. I'm a Bengals fan. So we were terrible, but you know what?
6: Welcome back to Ohio, Joe Burrow. We will take him hey. and open our We are we, ready to move off Mandy Dalton, so All give right. him Joe Burrow. All right. Okay. yeah. That
1: that does feel pretty good. Ohio boy made good. You know, couldn't yeah. uh couldn't click there at Ohio State, but man, he really proved him wrong uh, down in the bayou. That's for sure. Yeah, that's exciting. We had we had another guest in here uh, yesterday. He's a Kansas City guy, he also uh, is a Cincinnati Bengals fan. And man, you guys have had a tough go of it. But you're right. Maybe Joe Bur- Burrow will turn it all around. Ryan Dietrich, great to catch up with you, senior market strategist for LPL Financial, looking after about seven hundred six billion. That firm is. He joined us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina.